0: Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online.
1: We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today.
0: Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message.
1: In a world of information overload, with all the noise and hype that bombards our daily lives, stories can be a powerful form of communication. A good story, a good story cuts through the clutter and captures both our attention and our imagination. A good story's ability to stimulate our senses, to involve us intellectually as well as emotionally, it awakens us from the boredom and apathy that can mark much of our daily routines. A good story has a way of quieting all the loudness and discord that divides us And thus, a good story can bring us together in a posture of openness and learning. Sometimes, however, a story can be so good, universally resonating so deeply across all ages and cultures, that the particular narrative, the story, can take on a life of its own. Take, for example, today's story from 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. Perhaps one of the most well-known stories of the Bible both the appeal and application of the showdown between David and Goliath transcends beyond people of faith. This story has become like folkloric, emblematic of the underdog who overcomes the odds And fells a great giant or obstacle before them. It's become a metaphor in sports, in politics, in business. And this iconic understanding of the story of David and Goliath even has become the predominant interpretation within the church. In sermons, Bible studies, children's Sunday school classes, again and again, it comes up like this. A line from the beloved cartoon series, Christian cartoon series, Veggie Tales sums it up best when it it views the point of the story this way. Sometimes God puts a Goliath in your life for you to find the David within you. But is that the point of this story? Is the ultimate takeaway of this tale about teaching us how to fight our giants? Or is it possible that in being so familiar with this story, somewhere along the way we lost the point, the real meaning of what happens here? Today, I invite us to hear a story we all love the story of David and Goliath, as if it were the first time. And if we listen carefully, we might discover there is much more to this story than first meets the eye. Because this is more than a call for each of us to have more courage. It is both a revelation and a reminder of the source from which any true courage we can have comes. So listen carefully, as this is the opening to the story from 1 Samuel chapter 17.
0: Hello Grace, our scripture reading today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesus between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath who was from goth came out of the philistine camp he was over nine feet tall he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing five thousand shekels on his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels his shield bearer went ahead of him goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of israel Why do you come out of line and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's set the stage for one of the greatest showdowns in all of Scripture. In this corner, in this corner, camped out on one mountain are the people of Israel. And on the other corner, in the other corner, camped out on another mountain are the Philistines the Israelites and the Philistines. The Philistines have been Israel's enemies ever since the Israelites occupied the land of Canaan. During the period of the Judges, we might remember that Samson fought the Philistines. The Philistines have been a regular thorn in Israel's side. In fact, recently in 1 Samuel, the Philistines destroyed the Israelite city of Shiloh and remember, momentarily captured the Ark of the Covenant. This, despite the Lord's faithful protection, This continuing threat of the Philistines prompted the Israelites to ask God for a king to govern them. And since the coronation of King Saul, the Israelites and the Philistines have tangled on more than one occasion. And now here they are, both again poised for yet another battle, with a valley, the Valley of Elah, standing between them. But this time around... This valley, between the Israelites and the Philistines, this valley feels more like the valley of the shadow of death for Israel. Why? Because the Philistines have devised a new military strategy. Rather than launch a full-scale assault against Israel, the Philistines have advanced a champion to represent them in battle. Now, in the ancient world, Rival armies often did this rival armies would sometimes agree to let selected individuals from each side decide a conflict between them. The representative from each side was known as the champion of the people. It was also believed that the God of each nation would be present in their designated champion. Thus, a champion's victory or loss in battle would be attributed both to that nation's god as well as to the whole army. This approach also decided the outcome of any conflict without excessive bloodshed or unnecessary casualties of war. Well, for obvious reasons, each side normally would pick their strongest, their fiercest warrior to go into battle. And standing in the middle of the Valley of Elah for the Philistines is their champion. Their champion is a man named Goliath from the city of Gath. And Goliath is a juggernaut, a giant of a man at nine feet and six inches in height. Besides towering over the average Israelite, Goliath is covered from head to toe in about 130 pounds of bronze male armor. And in his hand, Goliath holds a spear with a 16 pound iron head. Further protection is afforded to Goliath by a shield-bearer, one of the Philistines' best soldiers, hand-picked for his strength, agility, and athletic prowess. While Goliath is well-armored, the shield-bearer's job as the first line of defense is to ensure that Goliath has no need of his armor. With this setting in mind, Goliath's voice thunders across the valley as he taunts Israel with the challenge of hand-to-hand combat. If Israel's champion can best Goliath in battle, the Philistines will become Israel's servants. If, however, Goliath proves to be the victor, then Israel will again become slaves to a foreign nation. Every day we're told... Every day, twice a day, every morning and every evening, for 40 days, Goliath comes down into the valley, issuing the same challenge from the Philistines. But from day one, Goliath's words only lead the Israelites to quake in their boots. The Philistines' psychological warfare tactics prove extremely effective, as day after day, no one dares to pick up the gauntlet thrown by Goliath. Fear increasingly overtakes the army of Israel, including their leader, King Saul. And there's tremendous irony in this. Because, you see, if we remember... One of Israel's arguments for having a king like all the other nations was so that they could possess a powerful, physically impressive king, one who would go out and fight their battles for them. And they got what they wanted in Saul. Saul, remember, was a man who was impressive in his appearance and size, being a foot taller than all the people. But now their dream king, their own Goliath, as it were, refuses to go out before them to be their champion on the battlefield. To fight for them. Instead, the best that Saul can do before the strength of the Philistines is to cower in fear like the rest of his subjects. All that he can offer is to try and bribe one of his soldiers to take on Goliath with the promise of great wealth, his daughter's hand in marriage, and a tax free exemption for life. And despite this lucrative offer, there are still no takers in facing Goliath. No one. No one steps forward. And then along comes David. David, a teenager to whom we were introduced in the last chapter of First Samuel, chapter 16. The youngest of eight sons born to a man named Jesse, David, to the surprise and shock of his father and brothers, was in that chapter handpicked by God and anointed with the Lord's spirit to eventually become the next king of Israel, Saul's replacement. But that's later. This is now. For now, in chapter 17, David arrives on the scene per his father's direction. Taking a break from tending to the family's flock of sheep, David is sent to check on his three oldest brothers who have gone to war. David comes with provisions from his father, grain, loaves of bread, ten cheeses to give to his brothers and the rest of the army on the battlefield. And after making the 15-mile trek from Bethlehem to the Israelite camp, David leaves what he has brought with the keeper of the supplies and heads to the front line to see his brothers. Now, we often get the impression that both armies are just standing facing each other at a stalemate. But it's more likely... That over the 40 days, the armies were in fact fighting against each other. Skirmishes, men are dying on both sides of the battlefield with a pause being taken twice each day as Goliath once again steps forward and makes his challenge that all of this can be resolved by a death match between each side's best warrior. So David's arrival is timely because he comes onto the scene during just such a break in the fighting. And he hears for the first time what his brothers and the rest of the israelites have been subject to for over a month not just the challenge but the derisive and defiant taunts of goliath and as the israelite army retreats in fear yet again based on the imposing giant they see before them david's attention's not on what he sees he's focused on what he hears coming out of goliath's mouth more than just a provocation of israel but a blatant mockery of the living God of Israel. And in response, David, who again has been anointed or filled with the Holy Spirit, exudes confidence rather than fear before this situation. David is not intimidated by Goliath or his threats, as he will later declare on the battlefield, while the Philistines perceive their might and power comes from the sword, the spear, the javelin, David understands his power, Israel's power, comes from the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. Abiding in the Lord's ability to fell this seemingly undefeatable giant, David starts openly questioning about how this challenge is going to be answered. How is this going to be answered? And in response, David is rebuked by his oldest brother, Jesse's firstborn, Elibab. At least eight years David's senior, Elabab tells David he's out of his element. You're out of your element, kid. You're just a boy in a man's world. Eliab tells David he should go back to where he belongs, back out in the pasture with the sheep and not here on the battlefield. But David refuses to be silenced. In fact, words of his boldness reaches the ears of King Saul. And Saul has been waiting for more than a month to shake the hand of a brave man who's prepared to be Israel's champion. So David is brought before him. But when Saul lays eyes on David, He immediately states the obvious. David's just a kid. David's just a kid. The law calls for Israel to go to war with men from 20 years and upward. Added to this, Goliath has been a mighty warrior for many years, probably longer than David's even been alive. Goliath is gigantic, well-armored, well-armed, and a seasoned gladiator. How can Saul as king send David, who is not yet a man, to face such a giant? David answers. David answers Saul, not by claiming any military expertise or athletic prowess. He simply reasserts his faith, faith in the Lord, faith in the Lord fortified by his experience of God's provision in enabling him to fend off lions and bears that threatened previously the sheep of his flock. Well, King Saul, having no one else clamoring to face the giant and being unwilling to do it himself, affirms David as Israel's champion. However, he also hedges his bet. Rather than relying alone on the Lord's protection of David, Saul comically attempts to suit up David with his own personal armor, the armor of the king. But David declines the use of this heavy, unwieldy armor. Instead, David arms himself with the kind of weapons with which he is familiar. A wooden staff, a sling, and five carefully chosen stones. As David then comes forward to face off against the Philistine's champion, Goliath, like everyone else, perceives an unworthy opponent, more of an insult, less of an actual threat. Cursing David's God, Goliath dares David to step closer. David, first without taking a step forward, David, in response, insists the Lord God Almighty will give him victory in this battle. Not only will Goliath fall, but the rest of the Philistine army will share Goliath's fate. Now, the Philistine giant, after this, initiates hand-to-hand combat with David. But David, you'll notice, does not play by these rules. He uses different tactics. As Goliath, we can picture it, burdened by his armor and weaponry, and hiding behind the shield bearer, as Goliath ponderously advances toward David, David, unencumbered, runs nimbly and quickly to meet the Philistine. David's choice of the sling as his weapon neutralizes all of Goliath's advantages. David can stay at a distance launching his artillery from outside of Goliath's reach. David can keep slinging stones while Goliath has to chase him, but things Don't even get that far things don't even get that far as david takes out his first stone slings it forward towards the philistine's forehead right between the eyes and fells goliath with a single shot now to our modern ears this may sound ridiculous we picture a child's toy a slingshot really a slingshot taking out a behemoth of a man with one throw we dismissively roll our eyes when we hear this story this is fable not fact david however was not using a child's toy. He was employing a powerful weapon used not just by shepherds to protect their flocks from wild animals, but a powerful weapon also commonly wielded by many ancient armies. Picture a leather pouch attached on two sides with a long strand of rope. Then imagine a rock or lead ball being placed into that pouch, and that pouch being swung around in increasingly wide and faster circles until one end of the rope is released, hurling the rock or lead ball forward. Eitan Hirsch, Eitan Hirsch, a ballistic expert with the Israeli Defense Force, recently did a series of calculations demonstrating a typical sized stone hurled by an expert slinger has the stopping power roughly equivalent to a modern handgun. In the book of Judges, slingers like David are described as being accurate within a hair's breath. An experienced slinger could kill or seriously injure a target at a distance of up to 200 yards. The Romans even had a special set of tongs made just to remove stones that had been embedded into some of their poor soldier's body when they suffered on the other end of a sling like David's. So you see, David, staying out of Goliath's reach, ends up using a missile against a rifle. Walking right up to Goliath, but still far enough away that Goliath's sword and javelin are useless, David kills Goliath with a single shot to the head, right between the eyes. That's the story. And what's the moral of this story? What's the normal Sunday school sermon application of this passage? Come on, we've all heard it. We've all heard it. Here it is. You are going to face giants in your life. We all have Goliaths that stand in our way. Maybe it's a financial difficulty. Maybe it's not having a job. Perhaps it could be a battle against cancer or some other disease. It might be marital or family problems we're facing. It may be an ongoing struggle with anxiety or loneliness or some other frustration in life. Whatever your Goliath is, we're often told, we can't live in fear, but we have to, like David, walk by faith to face and overcome the giants of adversity before us. The message often told of this story is believe in yourself. And with good analysis, persistent elbow grease, a little ingenuity, and of course, having the Lord on your side, you can become the hero of your own story. Well, this may sound great, and may even be what we want to hear from this story, what happens when we don't slay our personal giants? If I can't save my marriage, if I don't land that job, if my anxiety gets the best of me, if the cancer kills me, if my Goliath overtakes me, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean I didn't have enough faith? Does that mean I wasn't good enough, strong enough, smart enough, capable enough? This is the problem with taking the Bible and turning its redemptive message into a bunch of individual moral examples, lessons for life, and examples that we are to follow or shun. My friends, the Word of God is not some sort of holy Aesop's fables. The people we encounter in the scriptures are not intended to be examples for us to follow. The author of 1 Samuel 17 doesn't share this story so that we would emulate the example of David. No, David's not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. The Lord alone is the hero, the champion of the entire narrative of the Bible. Repeatedly, in the lead-up to his face-off with Goliath, to the moment he steps onto the battlefield, and even in the aftermath of victory, David isn't counting on himself. David isn't counting on himself to defeat the giant that stands before him. David consistently makes it clear that it is not his strength, it's not the strength of Israel that will defeat the Philistines. No, David recognizes, David trusts, David acknowledges it is the Lord God who is in charge. It is Yahweh who will deliver not only him, but all of Israel from the hands of their would-be enemies. So contrary to how we tell this story, David is not the underdog. David certainly doesn't see himself as the underdog, right? David only perceives the Lord as being greater than anything or anyone that the Philistines can throw at Israel. When we identify David as the underdog in this story, we become victim to the same trap that the Israelites, David's brothers, King Saul, Goliath, and the Philistines all fall into, namely the trap of looking for our strength and our salvation in all the wrong places. Because despite all the hype, all the taunts from the Philistines, all the fear on the part of the Israelites over 40 days, there isn't much of a contest, there isn't much of a fight to write about, is there? Because with one fell stroke, the Lord ends the battle before it even gets started, choosing to reveal his power and might through whom he has chosen and empowered, David. To push this even further, David in this moment isn't fighting against his own personal giants. David's not fighting against the obstacles before his hopes and dreams, David's goals for his life. David again recognizes and declares he is fighting a would-be adversary of the Lord. Goliath is not standing in the way of David. Goliath's not standing in the way of David reaching his full potential and living an abundant life. Goliath is daring to challenge the purpose and plans of the living God for Israel and thus for all creation. You see, if we stand back from the story of David and Goliath, the much bigger story of the Bible emerges. The message of this moment is not about teaching us how to fight our giants, how to succeed as the underdog. No, The point of this story is not the bigger they are, the harder they fall. No. What we have here in 1 Samuel is in fact a prelude to the gospel, to the good news for all humanity, the greatest story ever told. Because Goliath here doesn't just represent the Philistines. Goliath doesn't just represent any old challenge we face the paint, picture painted of Goliath is that of the ultimate giant before us. That obstacle in front of us, so well protected, we cannot penetrate it. The threat we face that is so well armed, it can hurt and even kill us in so many ways. It is the enemy before us that is so great, no ordinary human being can defeat it. Goliath represents the decisive battle we cannot win as humanity. Our shared Goliath is the obstacle of sin the threat of the devil, and the enemy of death. And David's entrance into this story isn't the introduction of the underdog, but the foreshadowing of the coming later of someone much greater. Think about it. David enters into this battle against Goliath as a representative of all the people, as their champion, as their substitute, through whom God brings the victory that Israel couldn't win for themselves. To everyone watching, David comes in weakness, David comes lacking right? the worldly measures of power and strength, of experience. David comes even lacking the proper armor for battle. As David emerges on the battlefield, it's almost as if he's being led like a lamb to the slaughter. Like a sacrificial lamb. And yet... Through David's perceived weakness and lack, through David's perceived weakness and lack, the Lord defeats the giant, the Goliath that no one can conquer, and brings salvation to Israel. You see, in this way, in this moment of time, David prefigures the coming of Christ. The Lord, our God, our hero, our champion, no longer working through a human agent, but coming down to become human in Jesus To conquer our true Goliath, sin, the devil, and death itself. Jesus, too, came from Bethlehem as a shepherd. Jesus, too, was perceived as weak and unimpressive in the eyes of Israel and Rome, not up to the challenge of the battle before us. And yet, and yet, the Goliath of all human sin, of the schemes of the devil, of even the inescapable finality of the grave, didn't stand a chance before Christ. As we stood on the sidelines, we witnessed Jesus on the cross confront and defeat our greatest foe, disarming the principalities and powers, atoning for all our rebellion and idolatry, and then through his resurrection from the tomb, transforming death from a final ending into the gateway of a new everlasting beginning. My friends, if there is a lesson to be learned in First Samuel 17, it is this. Like Israel, we are absolutely helpless before Goliath. The battle against our true Goliath is one we cannot win on our own. We need the Lord to meet and conquer the ultimate challenge before us. Contrary to popular belief and ironically far too many best-selling Christian books, This isn't a story about turning the impossible odds of our underdog lives into spectacular triumphs of the victorious Christian life by slaying our personal giants. We're not called to run out and find our stones of self-improvement in order to arm ourselves for battle. No, the message of 1 Samuel 17, the message of the gospel, is not that God blesses those who get their act together those who live morally exemplary lives. No, the message of the gospel is the Lord showers his grace. God rescues and redeems. God champions. God helps those who can't help themselves. You see, embracing the gospel is yielding before the revelation that we are not the heroes of our own stories. Embracing the gospel is recognizing and submitting to God in Christ as the hero, not just of our story, But of the human story, our hope, our trust, our confidence in our lives, in our circumstances must be in Christ alone as the champion of the fight for our lives, as the champion for the fight for this world, as the champion for the fight for all creation, because we cannot heal ourselves of that which afflicts us. On our own, we cannot withstand the temptations and assaults born of evil, all the lies, all the corruption, all the injustice, both both that's festering within our own minds and hearts, but also pressing in all around us in this world. By ourselves, humanity cannot resist or defeat the unavoidable specter of death. No, the good news, beloved, the good news is that we're not called to fight such giants. We're called instead to follow our champion, our great shield and defender, our giant slayer in Jesus Christ. So the next time we face these giants, the next time we come up against their taunts and their weapons, provoking our fear and insecurity, provoking our retaliation, striking back our violence, provoking our inclination to run for cover or just give up, let us lean into the presence and character of Christ. Let us abide, abide through prayer, through being in the word, through service to others. Let us abide in the work of Jesus. My friends, abiding in Christ isn't about trying harder to be a good Christian so we can triumph. Abiding in Christ is about trusting in the victory of the one who when he cried, it is finished, utterly crushed all that stands against us and made us more than conquerors In Him. Abiding in Christ is living out of the promise, the assurance that there is no sin in our lives that God cannot forgive, that there is no idol that enslaves which the Lord cannot overthrow, that there is no death, no loss, no failure from which Jesus cannot resurrect us. This is the gospel that we are not the hero of the story, that God is. Praise the Lord. Amen. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.